Hello sword people, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. Yes, you are in the right place, but I thought it would be kind of fun to change up the starting music a little bit. So when I started this podcast over a year ago, I thought I need some kind of recognizable sound thing to open things up with. And so I got a sword and a metal buckler and I whacked them together a few times with the results that you're probably familiar with. However, today's guest, Paul Wagner, is something of a musician and music fan and he made in the sorry in the pre-interview chat he uh, suggested that perhaps the podcast could use a better intro so what i did just for fun is i went into the files for my um, paradoxes of defense by george silver audiobook and snagged the recording of the battle galliard as played by andrew lawrence king which he did to add musical interest to the audiobook. And I thought, well, why don't I just tack it on the beginning of the podcast and see how it goes? So I need to know if you prefer the sword and buckler clash, or if you prefer the battle galliard, or if you have some better idea for intro music for the show. Let me know. You can email me at guy at guywindsor.com. So this is your host. Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer, and join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Paul Wagner, who is an instructor at the Staccata School of Historical Fencing in uh, Australia. Uh, He's also the author of several works, including Master of Defense and... Medieval Sword and Shield, The Combat System of the Royal Armies, Manuscript 133, which was, of course, co-written with Stephen Hand. And uh, he has a, a broad and deep interest in historical martial arts, which we'll be digging into shortly. So, without further ado, Paul, welcome to the show. G'day, Guy. How very Australian. So, uh, whereabouts in the world are you, Paul? Well, I am in Sydney, Australia, which, given the events of the last 18 months, is the only place in the world anybody would want to be. Everywhere (laughs) else, with the possible exception of New Zealand, is completely screwed. (laughs) True. And, and, you know, I've I've visited you in in Sydney several times, and every time you're like, Guy, you should really move here. And you know what? I'm starting to think you might have been right. It takes an awful lot for me to suggest that Paul Wagner might have been right, but no, I think you might have been. <laughs> okay. Um, now, let's let's um, kind of set the scene. You've been doing this quite a long time. Uh, how did you get started? What did that look like? Um, well, the short answer is music. Okay. The long answer to get from music is a little convoluted. Go ahead. Um, Okay, good. If we've got the time. Um, we have all the time in the world. All right. So uh, late high school, I discovered, and sort of early university, I discovered sort of folk music, um, mm-hmm. Celtic folk in particular. And I knew a girl of Scottish extraction who said, oh, you know, the Scottish stuff is so much better and lent me some. And she was right. It was really good. And one of the bands that we discovered through that was called the Tannehill Weavers. And we bought a bunch of their CDs, and most of the songs are about killing Englishmen. And right, fair they, enough. The liner notes came with very amusing little historical anecdotes 
uh, to go along with the songs. And that just got me really interested in Scottish history. Um, so I started sort of reading up about that. And then I turned up at Macquarie Uni uh, to start a PhD in biology. Um, so nothing to do with history at all. And joined the local reenactment group because it looked like fun and I was interested in such things now. And the chap who was running it was a chap named Stephen Hand. Oh, excellent fellow. Had just picked up this book by this George Silverfellow and decided that what this, whatever was going on in here has got to be better than the make it up as you go along school of swordsmanship. So I just randomly arrived on the ground floor of that whole thing just when he, he was first trying to figure it out. So I never learned reenactment fighting um, or anything like that. And about the same time, the internet started to happen and we started to find other people around the world interested in, in similar sorts of things through, through message boards and home pages and other things that, from the dark ages. Um, yeah. so folks like Greg Mallet, Ken Frenger, Chris Thompson, mm-hmm. Terry Brown, of course, and started to sort of chat to them. Um, and it all sort of took off from there. And the okay. other thing helped that because I was enrolled in a PhD, I had access to the interlibrary loan system. Ah, very handy. And back in the days before the internet could send graphics, like you used to avoid web pages with pictures because they took so too long to download. Right, um, I remember those. That was extremely useful. So I ran, ran the poor girl at the library ragged getting these random things from other places in the world, none of which had anything to do with my studies <laughs> at all. <laughs> but, but, but actually, you know, these days you're, you're definitely more of a historical sourcemanship instructor than you are a biologist. So Absolutely. You know, your career was set. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so you're studying... George Silver with Stephen Hand. Uh, this is in like the, I guess, the mid to late nineties. Early nineties, really. 90s Early nineties. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. Proper dark ages. Yeah. Right about the time um, Paul McDonald and I were starting the DDS. Excellent. Okay. So, so we are the grandfathers. <laughs> yeah, and we feel it. <laughs> yeah, this is true. Um, okay, so now you've got several books out. Uh, Medieval Sword and Shield, uh, Master of Defence, which is about George Silver, and you even have an Osprey book on the Pictish Warrior. I okay, so. do that. Paid for our honeymoon to the UK. That Did it? Yeah. Oh, fantastic. So, so, so Osprey books actually pay, do they? Oh, yes, yeah. It's a set fee, but yes, they pay you. Okay. All right, good to know. Um, um, a few years ago, I had a, a chap turned up who was doing a – he was actually – doing postgrad in history at Macquarie Uni mm-hmm. um, and he turned up at Staccata and it turns out that he'd written an Osprey book as well and he said that Osprey had given him my one along with a couple of others as an exemplar of the of the uh, of the form of, oh, of fantastic. The form that they want for that particular series so I was quite chuffed by that oh you should be <laughs> that's great um, okay so you have this, this broad spread of interests um, what are your favourite systems and why? Mm, okay, well, if I get to pick more than one, um, I have to say Pages Highland Broadsword is okay. number one. All right, tell us about and Pages Highland Broadsword. Most people listening will never have heard of it. 
Right. So, so start at the beginning and tell us everything. The beginning is, well, refer to my previous comment about uh, interest in Scottish history. Always wanted mm-hmm. to know how Highlanders use their broadsword. Um, mm-hmm. And I always said that if we ever found out and the system was completely crap, I would do it anyway. <laughs> and turns out that it's not crap. It's actually really good. It's really mm-hmm. simple. It's intuitive, um, but has a a depth of sophistication, particularly in the sort of biomechanical area that keeps you interested in studying for years. Okay. Um, and most importantly, it's really fun to fight. Like, Okay, so what is it like? Um, uh, lots of parry reposts and recoveries and lots and lots of, of exchanges, um, blade-on-blade exchanges, and it's kind of like more like a game of ping pong than chess. Okay. That way. Now, I mean, you must be familiar with sort of regular broadswordy, sabery type stuff. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, how is it different to that? Okay. So, the big difference with Page, and or you can dispute as to how different it is, um, is that Page, his primary piece of footwork is traversing. That is walking okay. circularly around your opponent. So it's not a lunge and recover system, it's much more circular. Um, And when you look through the later broadsword, British broadsword manuals, um, even though a lot of them are presented as a sort of lunge and recover system, there's usually a paragraph at the back that say, actually, you should be traversing around to the side because that's much better. And the difference between broadsword and smallsword is broadsword is fought on the traverse and smallsword isn't. So I think there was a lot more traversing going on in the later permutations than people generally give credit to. Okay. Um, and I was going to say the other thing about it is like if you're doing, say, silver and you get hit, it's because you did something stupid and you feel yeah. bad. Whereas if you get hit in broadsword, it's usually because the other chap did something clever and you can both enjoy it. <laughs> That's a really good distinction. Okay, so 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 Page, how did you come across Page? Because his Highland Broadsword manual comes from 1746, yeah. So we're right slap bang in, like, well, it's right after um, a certain uh, unfortunate yeah, well, he period started of Scottish writing, history that yeah, I don't mention. He, he started writing it as the rebellion was starting, because um, hmm. he says so, and he's obviously he says, I know how these chaps fight. There's going to be a market because people are going to know want to know this stuff. Mm-hmm. And you can see by the end of the book, he's really hurrying to get it out because you can see the rebellion petering out and he's going to lose his audience. Um, so he kind of rushes through the last bits. Um, I came across it because a friend of mine from Melbourne, Alex Hughes, found a reference to it in a catalogue of stuff. And he said, oh, this sounds interesting. And he sent it to me. And then we wrote off to the library in question and got hold of a copy. Um, so again, very analog. Yeah. <laughs> so how, how long, how long have you been working with Paige? Oh, goodness me. It was a long time because it was back when Staccato was just one school and Steve was still in Sydney. Um, so I'd almost have to go back and search through the YouTube channel to pin <laughs> it down. So okay. Being of a, a certain age, you are you tend to lose track of the decades, um, <laughs> <laughs> but a long time. Uh, okay, probably 
getting on to 20 years. Right. Uh, now, Page himself, um, I mean, I have a, a Scottish friend whose surname is Page, but we're talking Lowlander. So he wasn't. Oh, well, he, was, he, was, was he? he was English. We, we, we he was English. He was. Yeah, he was English. He, as far as we know, he, he was a clockmaker. He also okay. sold Highland broadswords. I think, was it Norfolk? Um, but he had a shop and he imported Highland broadswords and he sold them um, okay. as well as clocks. Um, and there's some reference to him once being in the army. So right. he may have well been posted to Scotland earlier in his life, and that's how he learnt what he knew. Um, and he also seems to have been active in the sort of prize-fighting circuit of the period. Okay. I mean, um, okay, if you've got an Englishman serving in the English army in occupied Scotland, and he's learning Highland broadsword from Highlanders, one has to entertain the possibility that they taught him wrong for a joke. <laughs> the one does. <laughs> I refer to my previous comment said, if it had turned out to be crap, I would have done it anyway. Yeah, fair enough. So, so do you have any, any information about how representative that system is for things that were actually done in the Highlands at the time? Is there any corroborating evidence there at all? So apart from some written accounts of Highlanders in battle, which are all reasonably vague, um, right. One of the main things we have is a thing called the Pennacuic Sketches, mm -hmm. which is a series of sketches from Pennacuic um, made during the occupation of the Jacobite army of the area. And right. somebody went out and sketched them doing their stuff um, in various poses, holding their swords, and even some, there's, a, there's one nice sketch of two of them practicing with broadsword and Taj. Um, and quite a lot of the details of those sketches, if you want to take them seriously, does match up quite well with what Paige is talking about. Um, so there's that. Um, okay. And apart from that, we have the sort of... The, the authors of the, of the time, of the Napoleonic period, were quite definite that there was a thing called, they called the Highland Method, which was okay. in some way different to... The, the sort of thing that was going on in the, on the, in the London cells. Right. Um, and there seems to be a fairly good consistency of what they're talking about, you know, so you hold your sword closer to your body rather than in a, in a straight arm guard. Um, right. You slip your leg at every parry and not just when it's attacked. Um, oh, okay. And so, so there's just, just, just to explain that to the listeners who may not be familiar... Um, so what we're talking about is normally if you have a sort of your sword arm is fairly far out and you have a fairly wide stance, you, you pull your front leg back if somebody cuts at it. But you're saying is they're keeping the sword closer to the body and every time they parry, they withdraw the front leg just in case. Just in case. Correct. Right. Yeah. Okay. Makes and sense. Particularly these, if you're wearing a kilt. I mean, you know. You <laughs> well, indeed. But you do they, they get these consistent differences between the English text, such as Wilde or Godfrey, mm -hmm. and the contemporary Highland text, whether they're, they're sort of Napoleonic era and just saying this is the Highland method. Um, do we have, do we have right. texts saying this is the Highland method? Yes, yes, they say this is Highland method. We even know where Angelo learnt his Highland broadsword system from. Oh, so, so Angelo's Highland Angelo broadsword is actually genuinely Highland? Yeah, he learned it from okay. a mate who was from Aberdeen who was okay. in debt of prison 
and you'd go and visit him once a week and they'd play Highland Broadsword on the roof of the prison. Uh, I did not know that. That's where he learned how to fight Highland Broadsword. So we're talking about Harry Angelo, son of Domenico Angelo, um, leading light of late 18th century London fencing and his 1799 Highland Broadsword Manual. This is what we're referring to. Okay. That Um, is what we're referring to. And then the So how did you find that out? That's in uh, Henry Angelo's memoirs. Okay, fair enough. He, he uh, wrote a, a book called um, Angelo's Picnic or something like that. That's right, um, that's right. Yeah, uh, ha- yeah, yeah, yeah. Angelo, so, his picnic, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he tells us. <laughs> okay, I've not actually read it, as you can probably tell from my surprise <laughs> yeah, at yeah. the um, brawl sword on the roof yeah. of the debtor's prison. Yeah, it's kind of cool, though, that you're, you're in jail and you can go up on the roof with a sword <laughs> okay. and fence your mates. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Prison isn't like that anymore. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I, 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 I derailed you there slightly. So so, okay. so Harry Angelo got his Highland. These are from a genuine Scotsman. From a, okay. um, there's also the, the art of defense on foot in various editions, attributed yeah. to Roworth and Taylor, yeah. etc. Um, another bit from Angelo tells us that he was called as a witness in a court case okay. about a chap who had pirated a fencing manual by a friend of his, an excellent amateur of the broadsword system called McHowth. And okay. Angelo, as a professional of the art, was called as a witness. Um, I found the pirated copy. Okay. Um. And putting it all together makes me believe that all the editions of The Art of Defence were written by this McHowth chap anonymously. Roworth oh, added, really? Roworth is only credited with adding the spadroon bit. Mm-hmm. Taylor is only credited with adding the spadroon bit. Right. And in some catalogues, such as the Bodleian, it's not credited to Roworth, it's credited to Howarth. Okay. So I reckon that they were all written by the same guy and he just revised them every couple of years. People say, actually, you shouldn't parry it like that because this could happen, you should parry it like this. And he goes, yeah, that's better. And then in the next edition he changes his mind about a few bits and pieces. Huh. See, I, I've... I've- you know, studied Roworth like years and years and years ago, and I, I, I can still fence kind of Roworth style broadsword. I had no idea that he was a pirate. <laughs> no, well, Roworth wasn't the pirate. The pirate copy uh, was printed in a site in an encyclopedia. Okay, the edition under fencing, and it's basically so it's- the whole manual from the beginning, with other bits from um, Angelo's small sword manual, the earlier Angelo. Okay, I mean, Diderot used Angelo's Ecole d'Armes from 1763 yeah. as, as the entry on fencing in his encyclopedia, but I think he did that with permission. So taking yeah. other people's books and sticking them in encyclopedias was, like, not uncommon. Done. But This was done okay. without permission, apparently, according to okay, Angelo. So, sure. So how, how come, how come Roweth, Charles Roweth, is publishing a book under his own name that was actually written by someone else, and that's not He's pirate. not. That's the thing. The, he's actually credited with the additional lessons on the spadroon. Is he? 
Mm. I've read I've read that book a million times. And yeah. Huh. Okay, I need to I need to dig it out and have another look at the uh, the title page. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well that is fascinating. Ah, it's, it's always an education talking to you, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> um all right, so yeah. no, the point is there's an awful lot to that story to be untangled. Yes, and, and but also the point is we do actually have um, sources written by <clears throat> documented Highlanders, um, which would suggest that their system is actually what was being done in Scotland. And so yeah. Page is, shall we say, authentically Scottish, although written by an Englishman. Yes, and it seems that the the, the Highland the system became the standard British army system. So everybody did a variation of it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, that, that, that kind of makes sense. There's, yeah. there's an awful lot of um, like historical precedent for occupying armies, taking the best military technology of their opponents and just adopting it. Yeah. Well, plus of course, the only way Highlanders could hang onto their swords was by joining the army. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. They point. did in large numbers. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so there are an awful lot of Highland regiments around and they managed yeah. to hang on to their swords long after everybody else had to give them up. Okay. Wow. Okay. So, um, Page, so how, how is Page different to, say, Roweth? What's the, um, how does one distinguish? I would say the, the, just, just more of an emphasis on the biomechanics. But the thing is, like, you know, like, all the Art of Defence editions have Page's footwork diagram. What about page two? Right. They don't okay. tend to go into great detail about it, but it's there mm-hmm. saying this is the footwork, um, whereas Page goes into a great amount of detail about moving your feet and changing your guards and this is why you do it. Um, right. Which seems to become, I would so say... I- it's, Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because I've seen you, like, teaching Paige and um, fencing in Paige's style or whatever, and it is a very distinctive kind of turning back and forth sort of motion, like opening and closing a door that you're doing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And that's coming directly from the text. That's coming directly from the text. And it's Excellent. in the later stuff. So, uh, so the art of defense stuff, instead of having sort of the arm out, if you're on an inside guard... Mm-hmm. You're in a narrow stance and your left arm is out the back, thrown out as far as you can according to Page, whereas in, say, Taylor or McBain, it's up by the face but still with the shoulder back. When you go to the outside guard, you go to a slightly wider stance. Matthewson says six inches. And you will put your left hand either on your hip or on your thigh or, in Page's case, across the belly. So, so you basically your, your, your backhand is flapping back and forth every time you yes. guard. Okay. Just slightly different positions depending on the yeah. author, but it's doing the same thing to the left shoulder, which is the important bit. Okay. Um, and and why a is lot of important? people don't notice that and tend not to do it because none of the texts tell you why should I change where my left hand is when I change guards? What's the point? Whereas Page does. And I okay, think so it might be one of those things that's just everybody knew that. It was so obvious there was no point in writing it down. Sure. So, so why why do you do it? Um. So my my modern definition of Page's biomechanical principle of equilibrio is 
the use of the left hand to manipulate the left shoulder to maintain alignment with the right shoulder. Okay. Which so is exactly right. what we use the left hand for in, for example, rapier fencing. Yes. Yes. But in a just much more three-dimensional way because you're making big sweepy cuts. Yeah, and, and you can see an echo of that in Domenico Angelo where he says that yes. if, yeah, if, if your hand is, if your, if your, um, if your sword hand is palm up, your backhand should extend palm up. And if your sword hand is palm down, your backhand should extend palm down. Yeah. And I was like, why the hell would that matter? So I tested it using, so testing the ground path that would occur when you do that. And sure enough, it is an awful lot stronger if you do it that way. Yes, it's a, in the short, short answer, it's all ground path. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, okay, now, um, we, we may come back to mechanics of page, but I do have a question for you uh, regarding English longsword. Now, okay, before we my, move on, you did yeah. promise me I could pick more than one favorite system. Oh, beg pardon. Yes, please carry on. <laughs> yes, so, so. I would say my favourite companion weapon system is mm -hmm. the English version of Sword and Buckler with the great big satellite dish thing. Okay. Because Explain. it's a it's a great big concave buckler. Right. Um, which and the concaveness, the the spreading out allows you to have a basket hilted backsword and swing close to your buckler and the because it flares outwards you can pass your hilt close by the ah. edge. Ah very handy. Very handy. So the buckler's huge. I'll get you up. Your viewers won't be able to, your, your listeners no, won't listen. be able to see it. But. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. It's, okay let, let me describe it. It is absolutely fecking enormous. So it's like a, a big bowl that is facing away from you with another bowl on the, in the middle on the inside of it, which is facing towards you. So there's a space for the hand grip. And then sticking out of the inner, inner dome, there's this gigantic spike, which in Paul's example has something blunt on the end. Okay, I need a photograph of that and we'll stick it in the show notes. Okay, we can do it's, that. It's, yeah. it's, it's a bit difficult to visualize. So, yes, a 12 inch pike is fantastic. Um, yes. And basically, if you've both got a backsword in one of those, you can really see how you could go down to Smithfield on a Friday night, have a couple of pints, and then bash away without any real danger of hitting each other. <laughs> okay. Um, so where, where does the source for that buckler come from? Well, if you have a look at, say, the English edition of Degrassi, hmm. where they've replaced the pictures with yep. terrible, blocky English woodcuts, that's what he's holding. True. Okay. There are a whole bunch of them in the <clears throat> Royal Armouries. Um, mm -hmm. And, in fact, when I went to the Royal Armouries, I realised that the first one I'd got made wasn't big enough. <laughs> like, oh, my God, that's huge. Um, and they apparently aren't, they aren't at all uncommon. Uh, we have sure. pictures of them from the 16th century as well as lots of ex extant examples. And although I'm saying it's English, the invention of it seems to be Welsh. Okay. Um, and there were Welsh buckler-making hubs, and they were very proud of their bucklers, and they wrote poems, love poems about their bucklers. Did they indeed? I, oh, yeah, I did. did not know that. Yes, it's okay. a lovely Welsh love poems about their bucklers. 
They really like this Orden Bafflers. Oh, okay. Send me one and I'll stick it in the show notes. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to I have to see a, a a love poem written to a buckler. Yeah. Um and this one this one's just made out of metal, but the real ones tended to have a sort of a a metal web mm-hmm. and then covered in heavy leather and then held on with lots of studs. Okay, so that should be a little bit lighter than the solid steel one. <clears throat> I don't know. I reckon I reckon that the heavy leather it's going to be bloody heavy. Um, I have found a it's just a flat buckler because it's a sort of 14th 15th century one, Welsh one that was dug mm-hmm. up on a battlefield and that weighed nearly 3 kilos. It was pretty bloody hell. That's but, a big heavy buckler. Yeah, but the weight of the weight of it is part of the joy because you just leave it there and it doesn't matter what people do, they can hit it all day. It doesn't move. Yeah. It doesn't move. And then then you have your arm in the sling. Yeah, yeah, you have your arm (laughs) in the sling for the next week because you can't move it because you've wrecked all the muscles. (laughs) Okay. Um, So, so so what are your like sources for its use? Okay, basically just silver and a bit of sweatnam because silver. Do you think when Silver's talking about a buckler, that's the kind of buckler he's talking about? That's the sort of buckler that was around at the time. That's what he would have been familiar with. So when he says bucklers are better than daggers because of their their weight and circumference. Right, that's what he means. Suddenly it all makes sense. It's just like, well, that's got weight, that's got circumference. That makes perfect sense now, not the, you know, pissy little 12-inch delicate little thing. No, it's not. It's an enormous thing. There's even a series of maps that were drawn of sort of 16th century cities all over Europe, Mm -hmm. and they have little portraitures of the locals um, walking around and showing the costumes of the place. And in all the European cities, you have a gentleman and his lady, and maybe one in ten, the gentleman might be wearing a rapier. Right. In all the English cities, everybody's carrying weapons, and they've got a servant carrying this enormous buckler on his back, wandering around. <laughs> I need a, a buckler-carrying servant. I have a new ambition in life. I need to make so much money that I can afford to hire someone to carry my buckler in the street as I promenade down the centre of Ipswich. Excellent. Life goal established. <laughs> Oh my god! All right. Just so, that England was a very special place. <laughs> always has been. Uh, so, so your your um, your area of choice would be page broadsword and a solid English buckler. Yeah, a buckler. Okay. Yes, unless I was fighting like dissimilar weapons. Mm-hmm. If I if I just wanted to humiliate them, I would choose broadsword and alehouse dagger. Okay, now I know what an alehouse dagger is because I have fenced you with one, I believe, or at least yes. played with them. And uh, but I don't think the average listener will have any clue what an alehouse dagger is. And there will be another photo of this one in the show notes. Yeah. So an alehouse right. dagger is more or less half a broadsword. It's a basket hilted dagger. Um, a somewhat less salubrious name for it was the bum dagger. Mm-hmm. And uh, according to the accounts we have, it's sort of 12 to 18 inches long. It has a basket hilt on it, which is 
one one poem says you could serve your soup in brain <laughs> brain somebody like a mall with it and it was too big to conceal and so you would wear it in a sash have it stuck sort of around your waist down your back mm-hmm. um, which is why it was called the bum dagger and for a period of time this is what your average Englishman would take to the pub if they were expected to be, get in a knife fight. Okay. It, it, it is very apt that you're Australian because, you know, the crocodile Dundee thing, no, that's not a knife. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, so I, I pull out my bollock knife to stab you and you pull out your bum dagger and you're basically yeah. holding a, a very short sword. Yes. And um, if people look up our YouTube video on it, we do... A, a quick demonstration bout between normal knife and alehouse dagger. Okay, I will put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, and it just it just just it humiliates nearly every other weapon. If you've got a broadsword and a dagger, you just stick it out there. You can block just about anything with it. Yeah. Um, as well, of course, chop people's arms off with it. It's you know big enough to be a short machete. Okay, so if you had to choose, would you go with Buckler or the Alehouse Dagger? Well, that's the thing. If I was fighting the same weapon, it would be Buckler. Mm-hmm. If I was fighting a different weapon, it would be Dagger. And that's just because it's it's more it's kind of like two swords. If you've ever done sort of the case of swords mm-hmm. thing against other weapons, that's fantastic. Against itself, it can get very messy. Yeah, that's a good point. You get you've got all these blades, and they all get tangled up in each other. Um, and there's there's a lot less freedom of action with the dagger when it's fighting itself. Okay. Whereas with the buckler, the buckler just takes care of everything, and so your sword is free to swoop and dive in any way it seems fit, and it's lots of fun. Okay. That said, you yeah. know a buckler with a 12-inch pike on it is mostly a dagger. <laughs> a dagger with an enormous basket around your hand is mostly a mostly buckler. A buckler. So there's, not, there's not that much difference between them. So I think I think the alehouse dagger is probably a little easier to carry. You don't need a servant for that. True. That is true. <laughs> okay. So so those would be your, like, your, your, top, yeah. your top system choices. Fair enough. Okay. Now... We do need to discuss English long a little bit. Now, my previous okay. guest, James Hester, uh, and listeners can find uh, his episode, uh, it's about 20 episodes back. Um, I asked him about English long material, and he and I generally agree that um, there is the, the, the text that we have for English long sword, our additional manuscript 39564, Cot- Cotonian Titus A. 25 and Halean manuscript 3542. Yes, I'm reading from my notes. I do not have that stuff in my head. Okay. And within those rather short, unillustrated um, sources, there is not a great deal of actual, like, hard and fast instruction to work with. So um, James and I are of the opinion that you can't have a should we say you can have you can make an interpretation of it and that interpretation may work but there isn't enough information to know whether that's what they were actually doing back in should we say early 16th century with the english longsword 
Do you agree? No. Ah, I thought not. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, right. Okay. So the first thing I guess is, well, yes, you're right. In so okay. far as if that was all we had, that would probably be true. Okay. But it's not all we have because, right. first of all, we've got a whole plethora of other European longsword texts mm -hmm. that tell us in much more detail how some of these things are done. Um, plus we have Silver, who says it's just like quarterstaff. Right. Plus we have, of course, then we have Swetnam, who does staff, and Wild, who does very longswordy-looking staff. Um, so we've got access to that as well. And there's evidence from the manuscripts themselves that tell us that they were well aware of what other Europeans were doing with their longswords and probably nicked it and used it in very similar ways. So uh, in the Harleian manuscript, we have the hawk, H-A-W-K-E, which is a sort of a descending cut, generally speaking, um, and the rabbit, which is a rising cut, and, you know, why is it a hawk and a rabbit? And it's probably because hawk is whore. Yeah, German for bloke. Yes, and rabbit is rabat. Okay. So you have a combination in Harleian that goes, you deliver a hawk down to the ground, then a rabbit up to the sky, and then a hawk down to the ground. So you're swinging your sword up and down. Okay, so that tells you that the hawk is down and the rabbit is up. Yeah. Then in Ledel, so additional manuscript, mm -hmm. you have a downright blow followed by a rabbit followed by a downright blow. So okay. you've got the same sequence, but suddenly it's just like, oh, now we've got a change in language. Yep. Ledel being closer to silver is now using a silver term mm -hmm. for, the, for that downright blow. So you've got the sword going up and down, and we know how that works because, you know, we've seen it in Fiore. We know yeah. how rabbits work and we know how blows work. So there's nothing wrong with, you know, it's to, to quote a friend of mine, it's not rocket science. It's, you know, swordsmanship is fairly, fairly direct. It's not rocket science. There's nothing, nothing particularly, you know, we've all got bodies and they all move the same way and the weapons are all more or less the same sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, if you swing the, so down from your right shoulder to your left hip and then up again, it's going to work in the same way. Sure. And then we have instructions within those manuscripts that are actually so specific that they give us a really good insight. So uh, one example would be, again, from Ledl, mm -hmm. where you deliver a downright blow, stepping back with your left foot, then a rake bringing your sword above your right shoulder, stepping forward with your right foot. So you go, all right, well, what's that about? Well, if you're stepping back, you're probably defending yourself. Probably. Okay. And if you're stepping back with your left foot and stepping forward with your right foot, you're not going all the way back. It's not a pass directly back because then you'll, it would be weird. You would, you would end up doing the splits. So you're probably bringing your left foot back to about the level of your right foot. And then you can bring your right foot forward in the next action. So the downright blow stepping back, suddenly you've got a piece of footwork, which is more or less a slip. Yep. Stepping back with a downright blow, so you're cutting down on the attacking sword. And then we're told to step in with our right foot for the riposte, uh, with a rake bringing our sword up above our right shoulder, which is a cut three in broadsword or a cut two 
left ox in German. I've forgotten what that says in Fiore. Rising. Uh, uh, you, say, you say above the right shoulder. Yes, because. So, so on the right side. Yes. So, so, so I'm uh, stepping back, yeah. carrying with the downright blow, then rather than delivering a, say, a thrust to the face as my riposte, mm-hmm. I'm bringing it up with a rising cut. I would, I would bring that rising cut up from the left to the right. But you cut that you cut down from right to left. Would you not then cut up from left to right? Well, that depends on what the other guy does because okay. you know, if I've swung my sword at somebody and they whack it down, I'm going to do the traditional English thing of retreat into a hanging garden and run away. <laughs> okay. Okay, so I'm basically going to go to that left oxy type position. Okay. Which is pretty standard, you know, that they're delivering mm-hmm. the energy, you just roll your hands and let it go. Yeah. And if they do that, my direct riposte at, say, the face where the thrust isn't going to work, they're going to recover and deal with that. Yeah. If, however, I throw that cut, I tend to take their arms off. So okay. it's actually quite a sophisticated, that, that little sequence is actually quite sophisticated because you're parrying, you're finishing with your point online, threatening the thrust, they are forced to recover into a hanging guard which exposes their hands to the cut from underneath, which you do. So, so the rake is a, cut, is a cut from the underneath. The rake is a the rising hands. cut with the true edge, whereas the rabbit tends to be with false edge. Okay, and you sort of figure that out from what what works in this situation according to... And also to... from, say, Swetnam talks about the rake. He, the rake is okay. mentioned in his Welsh hook part. So a lot okay. of these terms have definitions from later English systems. Okay, and we're talking so, like 130 years later, something like that? Uh Little is supposedly early to mid 16th century, so it's only okay. 50, so, so 50, 60 years, okay. Yeah, um, you know, and you can see from Harley to Little, mm-hmm. that's you know, a hundred years. Most of the terminology is the same. Some terms have changed. Okay. Then you um, go to Silver and Swetnam, and you see well, some of the terms that used in Little are in Silver and Swetnam, and some right. of them aren't. Okay, but you can get a, you know, I've I published in was it the art the arts of Mars series that oh, yeah. WMAW yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I did an, a article in there where I explained where all the definitions of all the terms in all the manuscripts and how what they are and how I came to those conclusions um, and justified from that. So if you know yeah. what a hawk and a rake and a rabbit and a quarter blow is, then putting the system together is not that hard because, you know, it's, it's again, it's not that complicated. <laughs> well, this, 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 is, something this is something where, where we definitely agree, right? There is fundamentally you put your sword in the way of your opponent's sword and you hit them. Exactly. And if their sword is in the way, you go around. And that's yeah. basically it. You know. And we uh, even, all sorts of even, simple. There's even there's even a wind in it. So okay. we have a thing where you you give it a little blow, and then it says, and then you deliver a broken foin, okay. thrusting your pommel over and under your right elbow. So as soon as you start doing that, you're going, all right, I've parried the blow, and then I'm doing that, or I'm doing that, which is a wind. Yeah. yeah. 
except they called it a broken foin because it's a thrust you do after your attack has been broken, presumably. Okay. It's right. Yeah. Um, so again, without the German material, we'd have no idea what the utility of that is. But we do have the German material, so we can recognize and say, oh, okay, so they're doing a thrust, turning the sword, so therefore it's a wind. Right, okay. Um, okay, a tumbling chait as round as a ball. The tumbling cat, yes, I call it the tumbling cat round as a ball. Oh, you call it cat, yeah. not chait, okay. Well, yes, just just because le chat. Okay. So it's probably not, it's probably, chait is probably not cat, but... It's easier to remember for everyone that way. Okay, because just, just, just to put this in context, it's C-H-A-T-E, and it's a word that for which we have no definitive definition. But it seems to be some kind of like combination of actions strung together into something you do in a sword fight. More or less. Yeah. So this is essentially, it's starting on your right shoulder. It's a downright blow where you pass forward and right, followed mm-hmm. by another downright blow as you make your corrective step back with your left foot which works marvellously as a feint against somebody who's really twitchy and swings hard at everything you throw at them. Okay. So you throw your first blow really fast, they swing it and they miss because you've swung through really fast and you just let the momentum of the sword swing itself over and you strike them on the head with the corrective step. So basically uh, like a Molinello on the inside. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And... Okay, so what what do you think of the word chait or cat? Well, so it's not cat. It's just it's no, just no, no, but... cat. round as a ball is just marvelous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, there's no real information about what that means, so we can okay. only guess. But yes, it does seem to be some sort of sequence of techniques. I just so, came up with a wild theory. Yes. It's actually the origin of the Japanese word kata. <laughs> well, I'm happy to agree with you. <laughs> Splendid. Okay. So, um, where would we actually learn his swordsmanship from an Englishman with a, with a broadsword and an alehouse dagger, you know? Of course he did. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, so so where should people go if they want to find out more about English Longsword and um, how, it, how it works? Okay, so I have articles um, mm-hmm. in the aforementioned WMAW Arts and Love publication. I say, yeah, and yeah, yeah, and also in that Brill book. Do you remember Brilbert. the Brill one? It was... I'll find it on my shelf. Okay. Uh, hopefully. Uh, I'm looking for the Arts of, Arts of Mars one as well. All right, there's the Arts of Mars. I found them. Oh, you've got that. Okay. I have it, but I can't put my hand on it right now. I need to reorganise my library. Or rather, I need to stop reorganising my library. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is uh, volume two. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's in one or two, but it's in one of them. Okay. Um, and late medieval and early modern fight books. Uh, excellent. I will... Oh, Darren Jacquet, Karen Varels, and Timothy Dawson are the editors. All right, published by Brill. Cool. Okay. I will, I will find those books and put links in the show notes. Other than that, 
Mm-hmm. If you go to our YouTube channel, I have done several fairly detailed videos of the principles of English Longsword and the actions and seeing it in action. Mm-hmm. And if you want to learn it and you don't have anybody nearby who does it, go and do some Fiore because that's pretty close. As Carlo Parisi once described it as Fiore done all wrong. <laughs> Okay, excellent. So um, now we've been, Silver's come up a lot, unsurprisingly, as he's like in the in the like early nineties. He was the one English language source that we all found in libraries, right? Yes. And I can I can remember I found in the Edinburgh University Library I came across paradoxes of, paradoxes of defence in that nineteen sixties facsimile edition, um, which is super like mind-blowing and helpful thanks to the Shakespearean uh yeah that's the one <clears throat> so your master defense book was like it's the in my opinion the definitive study of paradoxes of defense and brief instructions and you have kindly included it as one of the perks in my audiobook campaign where I am getting paradoxes of defense um read uh, narrated as audiobooks in both modern pronunciation and also in original pronunciation. And the original pronunciation is particularly interesting because um, how he's, you know, the, the, the accent and the voice and the pronunciation is, it changes how you kind of absorb the, the language. So uh, I, I think personally, as particularly as an Italian rapier fencer, I, I'm. I tend. I tend to the view that that silver is perhaps a trifle overrated. <laughs> would you care? Would, would you care to comment on that? <laughs> um. The thing about silver is, regardless of what you think of his system, uh, his principles and his concepts and his language is just too bloody useful to avoid. Oh, absolutely. He just, yeah. he just he just explains the theory behind everything and gives you a language with which to talk about it and explain it and think about it um, like no other source. So, like, I'm quite happy to admit, like, if you read the difference between what he says in paradoxes and what he says about rapiers and brief instructions, he changed his mind in brief instru- in paradoxes. He was all about open fight and garden fight are much better than this Point forward. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But in when he gets to paradoxes, he says, if you're fighting a rapier, don't be an open or garden, make narrow space upon them. So <laughs> obviously somebody's come along and poked him in the belly a few times and he's gone, oh, all right. Um, okay. Can, can we just define open fight, garden fight, variable fight, variable. and close fight for the listeners who will not all be silver people? Okay. So open fight. Uh, of which Silver gives us one lying, which we just call open ward, is where your sword is held above your head ready to deliver a jolly good downright blow. Okay. Garden fight, of which he gives us one lying and one additional ward, which is really two, is point down hanging guards. Um, And the one he likes is what the later British sources called the prime hanging guard, so it's held quite close to your body, 
rather than pointing forwards. Um, so you can see it in, uh, say, anti-pugilism, Sinclair um, has a nice okay. picture of it. There's also one in one of the Angelo publications as well. Um, but it's basically where you put your, your sword when you're parrying in a hanging guard. And he also says if it's lower, you drop your sword down to what were later called the inside or outside half hangers, and which Silver calls bastard gardened. Mm -hmm. And that's garden fight, just those three. Okay, and, uh, and fight fight is basically... A collection um, of positions in which you hold your sword that have something in common. Right. So even though he only gives us one open fight, which is straight above your head, um, if you were lying in right shoulder... That would be open fight. Left shoulder would be open fight. Underarm would probably be open fight because they're all charged guards. They're not closing a line. They're not presenting a point. They're not engaging the other person's blade. They're just ready to deliver a blow. So that's right. really open fight. Garden fight, even though Silver only gives us the point down versions, I'd say in an expanded universe, garden fight is probably something that closes off the line of attack of your opponent. Okay, makes sense. Then we have close fight, which Silver says, if you are getting physically close enough to your opponent's sword that you sh can engage their blade, what he calls the half sword, which is not German half sword, it means halfway up the sword, um, then you should do so because you're getting very close, they can attack you very quickly, and by engaging their blade, they then have to disengage to hit you, and the time that that, that takes substitutes yeah. for distance, so it's safe so, to do so, so. So close fight is basically fencing from engagement? Yes. Okay. And that includes your standard inside and outside guards, um, and probably your extended hanging guard would count as that as well. And variable fight, Silver says, is anything that doesn't fit into any of the above categories. Um, okay. The, the examples he gives us are all point-forward thrusting wards, so they're all rapier wards. So we have staccata, which is sword foot forward, uh, essentially Saviolo's kind of withdrawn guard with okay. the sword by your right hip. Passata, which is the same thing but sword foot back. Mountanta and imbricata, so imbricata is... Hand so, in first, pointing forwards. But why Why is he using these absolutely butchered Italian terms? I think Sir William Hope put it best when he said, I know I'm using lots of foreign words, but that's because this art was brought to this country by foreigners and now everybody understands that language, so we're stuck with it. No, no, but he uses them wrong. Like, stoccata is oh, not yeah. a guard position, it's a thrust. Yes, yeah. uh, because he's English and he doesn't care. <laughs> That's probably see, right. See the hawks and rabbits. It's the same thing. It's just you know yeah. adopting foreign terminology and using it in a, in a amusing or at least you know butchered way. Okay. Um, Long tradition. Okay, so we have these these four kinds of fight: open fight, variable fight, garden fight, close fight. Um, yep. And so and just. Close fight is not grappling. Close no. fight is fencing from the swords crossed at the middle. Correct. Which is reminds me... Okay, there is a whole lot of stuff we could go into around Fiore's definition of, of how Fiore uses the terms Zogolara and Zogostrata, which is all about the crossing of the sword. But let's not dive down that particular rabbit hole because I don't think it's terribly useful for people who are listening if they can't see. Okay, so... 
Um, so what, what what else does does Silver give us other than these these fight definitions? Um, he gives us a very simple self-contained system okay. um, that a it works fabulously against itself. It works right. exactly the way he says. We've got, when we first started back in the early 90s, we were doing Silver and Saviolo. Right. And Silver worked exactly the way Silver said it would work, and Saviolo didn't work in exactly the way Silver said it wouldn't work. <laughs> okay, now I have to get Chris Chatfield on the show, who is a Saviolo person, to rebut your statements. <laughs> okay, making a note here, invite yeah. Chris. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And in particular, the the subtleties of timing that you can get when you're fighting from open fight mm-hmm. tends to befuddle people who have not seen it before. Right. Okay. So you've got this sword. It's way up in the air. It's way back there. You can't engage it. You can't play with it. You can't beat it. You can't do anything about it. And it can come down at pretty well any angle. Mm-hmm. And it can change direction halfway through. So if you commit to your defense too early... The person attacking has time to just turn their wrist and hit you somewhere else. And that, if you have not seen it and you don't understand how it works, can really throw people off. Um, right. So even though I I love Paige tremendously, I still teach Silver on a fairly regular basis so my students have seen it and can understand it and don't freak out when people do it to them. And every now and again, I get a student who just takes to it like a duck to water and doesn't want to do anything else any, ever again. So, Fair enough. Yeah, and that's, that's the thing. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit sort of, okay, I, I may have come across as dismissive of silver, and that's not really fair. It's, it's, you know, it has this kind of grammar of how swordsmanship works, which actually applies really well to, like, Oh, what you were describing about open fight, it's like fencing from Posta di Donna, right? Because the sword is held back, it can't be fiddled about with by your opponent. And there are, as Fiori says, Posta di Donna could do all seven blows of the sword. And you can time it in all sorts of different ways to offer various threats or feints or opportunities or openings or whatever for your opponent so that you can sort of manipulate them into behaving a certain way so you can hit them somewhere else. Yeah, precisely the same thing, yes. Huh, okay. Um, And, of course, you know, he gives us, like, the true times and the false times, which... He does indeed. uh, By by all means, tell us about the true and false times. Do you you want to go there, do you? Yeah, yeah, let's... No, let's, let's, because, because, again, I am am well aware that an awful lot of the people listening have never read Silver or, or Train Silver or anything else, so it's no bad thing to... I mean, to my mind, it's one of those treatises where you have an awful lot of information that is applicable to a lot of other systems. Yes. Right? And understanding, even if you're not particularly interested in, I don't know, 16th century English fencing, and maybe you prefer, I don't know, 14th century German fencing or 17th century French fencing or whatever, right? There are still things that are made explicit in silver that are not made explicit elsewhere. Time of the hand being one of those ones where, you know, Capoeira does say you should lead with the sword, but he only kind of briefly mentions it in passing and doesn't make a big thing of it. Yeah. Okay. So basically the great insight about the true times is that 
rather than talking about, say, tempos, you know, mm-hmm. a, the time it takes to do a fencing action, Silva says that, okay, different fencing actions take different amount of time depending on what part of the body is moving. So you can move your hand really fast. Mm-hmm. You can drop your hand from open ward down onto your opponent's head really, really fast. But you can only do that if you're close enough to hit them. So that's what he calls the time of the hand. If you're a little further away and the hand alone won't work, but you could do it by shifting your weight forward, then that is what he calls the time of the body. And it's a little bit slower, but it's still pretty fast. If you're at a normal kind of fencing distance where you can't hit each other even if you lean in, but you need to step in with, say, a lunge, that's what he calls the time of the foot. And if you may have to make a bigger foot motion, so a passing step or multiple footsteps to reach your opponent from further away, that's time of the feet. So, you know, a triangle step attack is in time of the feet. And because these different actions move at different speeds, that has a profound effect on how you fight. Because if I'm standing at distance in open fight with my sword foot back and I want to attack, if I moved my hand as fast as I could whilst passing forward as fast as I could, I would miss because my sword would finish its action with the time of the hand long before my feet can get me close enough to hit my opponent. So I've got a paradox. I can either swing my sword really fast, step forward and miss, or I can step into distance till I'm close enough to swing my hand really fast, which puts me in the distance where my opponent can stab me in their time of the hand. So that doesn't work either. And the true times explains how you attack in order to be safe from that position. He says the true times, very simple, true times is where the hand moves before the feet. False times is where the feet moves before the hand. Right. So if I'm sword foot back in open fight and I want to attack, I start my hand motion first. That will make my body weight shaft to shift forward, which is the time of the body. And then I will move my feet and my hand has to be before me. Right. And the before means in time, but it also means more importantly in space, in front yep. of. So it's what we would call attacking with opposition, making sure your weapon is between you and the other person, particularly their sword, before you enter the distance in which they can hit you. Right. It's an explicit discussion of initiation. What yes. moves first? Yeah. Yes. And, what and moves how, and, how, and why? And, and the, the problem is you'll hit much harder if you step with the feet first and then swing. So your body, your body wants, well, I've I've tested it. Your body wants to step into measure. If you want to hit hard, you step into measure and then you strike. And when you have both feet planted and then you strike, right? And that gives you by far the hardest hit. If you're, if you're striking from um, the edge of measure and you have to step in behind it, you sacrifice an awful lot of power, which feels, I don't know, frustrating for for beginners, and so that's why they will tend to step in first and then swing. But of course, then you get stabbed in the face. So yes, it's it's tricky. Yeah. It helps to remember um, that you've got a sodding great big sharp weapon. You don't actually have to hit that hard with it to do horrible. No, damage. and the other thing is to remember that Silver's using a basket hilt broadsword, mm-hmm. which allows you to lead with, as he says, the hand. He doesn't say the sword; he says the hand. Yeah, because your hand is safely encased in a cage of steel, yeah. which means you can keep the point of your sword hanging back. 
Right. So at the very last second before you you hit, you just squeeze your hand and the tip of the sword whips forward yep. at enormous speed. So you can actually deliver, like, we used to wonder about some of the things that people doing longsword were saying overseas about, you know, sort of what sort of protection they needed because we were going, that's, that's clearly inadequate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and this is long before we started doing longsword and realised, oh, I see, you can't do that with a longsword. You'll get your hands cut off. Yeah. But with, with the, with the backswords, we can deliver an enormous amount of force in that just last fraction of a second just mm -hmm. as you whip that point forward. Um, Sure, so, yeah. With, with a longsword, you have to have the blade out in front of your hands. Yes. Otherwise, you're, you're just going to get them chopped off. Yeah. Precisely. Whereas <laughs> with, with, with a broadsword, you don't need to and you don't want to. Right. You want to keep yes. it hanging back till the last fraction of a second and then squeeze your hand and smack them. Okay. So I think I think we've maybe, um, like, what's the word? We, we've illustrated the usefulness of silver as a, as a source. Well, the, the other important thing to remember at Silver mm -hmm. is that he has quarterstaff in it. Yeah. And as a child, I used to watch Monkey Magic. And one That's all good children did. Yeah, one fight with quarterstaff, so we'd go and get some broomsticks and within a few minutes have smacked each other on the knuckles and thrown them down in disgust. Yeah. And that's why I started reading Silver, because he had staff. And I read it and I went, Oh my God, that you have a, like a long bit out the front. Yes. And then you've got like a short bit behind you. That's why I say quarter staff. Like you hold it. Yes, you hold it at the quarter, not at the yeah. half. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, okay. <laughs> and that's important. Very important. Excellent. Okay. So, yeah, go to Silver for all your quarter staff needs. Sweatham's pretty good too. Okay, Let, let's. You've mentioned Sweatham quite a bit, and I don't think anyone else has really mentioned him on this show. So I'm guessing that quite a lot of my listeners don't know who Sweatham was. And okay, when he so was writing. Uh, so Sweatham used to be the fencing master to Prince Henry in the early 17th century, who died as a as a young lad. Not in a sword fight. Not in a sword fight. No. Very important because if he died in a sword <laughs> fight, we can yeah. we can dismiss Sweatham as an instructor. Yeah. Yeah, but obviously, obviously, he was obviously pretty good. Yeah. Um, he, from what we can tell, he was probably an ex-sailor. He was from Plymouth mm -hmm. um, and tells lots of nautical stories and uses lots of nautical analogies. Um, he was... <sighs> he had a copy of Silver because he steals large portions of it in his manual. Right. Uncredited but also disagrees vehemently with Silver about the usefulness of the rapier. Um, okay. Doesn't necessarily disagree with Silver about the Italian system um, because he uses his rapier in a very, very, very non-Italian way. Yes. Um, and the reason I got into Swetnam, like this is way back in the very beginning, is the aforementioned uh, comment about Saviolo not working I read in a history of fencing thing somewhere that Swetnam says, rapiers are so simple, any idiot can learn it in three weeks. And I thought, that's the rapier system for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I 
got a we had a, had a photo back in those days when we were getting those photocopies. Yeah, I remember those yeah. photocopies. Yeah, dug that out and I read, you know, the chapter on actual sword. Like chapter twelve is the sword fighting bit. Everybody, everything else is waffle, um, amusing waffle, but waffle nonetheless. And I went to class and I just wiped the floor with everybody, just by doing this simple sweatnam stuff. And it was just like, this is good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it works. We, we quickly discovered it's boring. <laughs> if, if you're yes. both doing sweatnam, not a lot happens, but it's bloody effective and took didn't even take me three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, um, and sweatnam is is also famous for writing a monstrously misogynist against lewd and unconstant women. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so he, he's a raging misogynist, but. Um, I guess it's not really fair to dismiss his rapier system just because he himself wasn't particularly nice. Yes. You know, although I, you know, Steve Hand argues that, uh, you know, it just comes across badly. He was really trying to give, you know, kind uncle advice to the, the young men of the era. And, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, good luck with that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> put, that I, on, I, put that on Twitter and see what you get. I, I, I think I think that after the silver thing, we should definitely do the complete works of Swetnam plus a dramatic rendition of the play Swetnam the Woman Hater. Right. Oh, you mean after my after my audio yeah. thing? Yeah. Well, it'd be, it'd be a lovely package. It would. Yeah. And Swetnam is funnier than Silver. He tells funnier stories. Well, that is true. But okay, so the play Swetnam the Woman Hater. Who wrote that? Can't remember who wrote it, but the Queen was the one who commissioned it. Because after he wrote his his arraignment against lewd women, she was so offended she had the play commissioned and then made him sit next to her while it was performed at court. <laughs> now that is payback. <laughs> oh my god, that's excellent. Okay, where did you find that out from? Oh, I can't remember where I read that. <laughs> okay. I, I need to, I need to look into that because that's that is genius. Okay, so yeah, and it looks like I'm going to need to do another crowdfunding campaign because because Swetnam should be Swetnam should be essential reading just for the stories. I mean, his principles are great; they're not in any yeah. way um, incompatible with Silver's. They're quite similar in many ways. Yeah. Um, but he just he gives really good practical advice and also a really good insight into the context of use of the weapons at the time. So two things he says that are really, like, I think insightful is that most of the book is about how not to get into fights with drunk people. <laughs> now, that is good advice. Because he says, everybody's, he says everybody's drunk and when people are drunk, the wits go out and... They don't defend themselves and they do stupid suicidal things and they're easy to kill but hard to defend against. And so if you're challenged to a duel, make sure you do it first thing in the morning because by lunch, everybody says the drink is in and the wits are out. So right. by lunch, everybody is drunk. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I, it's clearly and, yeah. I, I, yeah. The other thing that he says, which I think is is interesting and gives you a, a insight into what people are fighting with, is he says, 
one of the reasons he doesn't like blows as opposed to thrusts is the extreme likelihood of your sword breaking or even the pike flying out of your quarterstaff if okay. you swing a blow. And he says, and when people do swing blows, they swing so hard that they will swing around and turn their back My God. on the opponent. So the context of use of both silver and sweatnam is not very well-trained people who are probably pissed with bad quality weapons, which they don't really know how to use, trying to kill you in a drunken street fight. <laughs> that, that is the design for. It's, it's not for winning tournaments. It's not for genteel genteel fencing. It's for defending yourself from people who are not particularly sophisticated, but (laughs) bloody murderous. Well, like like Silver himself says that, you know, he would would put all these fencing masters to a test where you have to fence three other masters and actually land blows on them. You have to fence three... Um, unskilled but valiant men unskilled valiant men and you know not get hurt and also three valiant men half drunk yes indeed um and we have we have carried that experiment out okay what happened um well if you go to youtube you go to the staccato youtube channel and you type in half drunk at h-a-l-f-e d-r-u-n-k-e half drunk you will see the experiment and the results of it in action. And let's uh, just say it depends a little bit on how you react to your period ale. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, if, if, but if it was enlightening. <laughs> okay. In what way? Um, okay. So the, the, the two of us who volunteered to be half drunk was me and... Of course. Uh, of, course you, of course it was you, Paul. Of course it was yes. you. <laughs> um, and our, our, our in-house brewer brewed up some uh, period barley wine for me. Excellent. And uh, so I think an apple apple brandy for Tim. And uh, I got much faster and much more aggressive and much scarier overall. Um, okay. And I would I, – I, you know, I – Felt fine, but everyone said you were moving twice as fast as you normally do, and you were completely ignoring any little fainty, delicate mm. thing and just hammering in and became actually quite hard to fight. Tim, who was a more cautious fencer to start with, got more so. So, Okay, so just, it just exaggerated your, your sort of natural tendencies. He seems to, yes. Okay. Huh. Interesting. All right, yeah, so everyone should go and check out your YouTube channel. You also have some, um, should I call them rants? <laughs> you can call them rants, <laughs> if you like. Uh, all right. <laughs> which, are, which are always well thought out and, and you know, relatively politely expressed. I try. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think we should probably not go into the details of any of them. If people are interested in your opinions on those subjects, they can just check out your YouTube channel. I will put a link to it in the show notes. Okay. <clears throat> now, I have a couple of questions that I ask most of my guests. And the first is, what is the best idea you have not acted on? Hmm. Okay. So 
until recently, I would have said uh, my Beowulf the musical, but okay. I've actually finished that. So okay. it took me years, but I've written Beowulf the musical. Right. Uh, is it going to be performed anytime soon? Uh, yes. Well, 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 I'm hoping to put a concert version together first, okay. um, which will, you know, like COVID isn't great for, for touring musical productions. Definitely but, but yes, it's, 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 it's 20 years in the making and really funny, So, which is not something you can say for the original. Um, <laughs> okay. Beowulf the musical. All musical right. You had it coming soon. Um, I've got off my bum and I've got superior fencing to make me a Highland cartoon-based fencing jacket. Okay. Which, well, there will be a review of on our YouTube channel very soon which I'm extremely ecstatic over. It's everything I've always wanted in commercial HEMA armor. Okay. Um, I can tick that off the list. So just tell us a bit about it. Okay. So one of, for some weird reason, this is one of our most watched and most controversial videos was a rant, which I just did off the spur of the moment was just like, cause I'd got a, a Spez jacket first generation, um, which I'd won in a tournament in America, I think, as a prize. And initially I thought, oh, this is great. And after a little bit of wearing it, I realised this is not great at all. It's really ridiculously hot and stuffy, doesn't breathe at all. It's only padding, which really doesn't present enough protection for what we were doing. See, aforementioned comment about backsword fencing. Yep. Um, and, of course, was only down to the waist. So left. You then had to wear, you know, special fighting trousers or something. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Whereas before, I had always just made a full-length gambesini type thing that covered you from neck to thigh. Um, and in particular, I'd made a reasonably authentically made Highland cartoon, which is sort of 15th, 16th century type of Highland armour that was made from leather stuffed with um, cotton or wool to make sort of tubes. So much like a cricket pad, essentially. It's just a a full body cricket pad. You can see carvings of these on Highland grave slabs from the period. So how do you spell the word, cotton? C-O-T-U-N, which is Irish for cotton. Okay. Because it was stuffed with cotton. Possibly it was stuffed with not cotton cotton, but what they call bog cotton, Mm -hmm. which is a plant that grows up in Northern Britain and Ireland, you may be familiar with it. Right. It has antiseptic properties as well. So during the war, they used it for wound dressing. Okay. Um, so it would be a sensible thing to stuff armour with, I would have thought. Yeah, sure. But whatever it was, it was basically, it's a, it's a, a stuffed gambeson, and just by itself, it's solid sword-proof protection. Really good. So I said, why can't we make something like this? And... For some reason, that was very controversial. Um, And after many years, I finally got somebody to make me one and put them into production. So, Oh, wow. Okay. And and what's the name of the company that's doing that? This is Superior Fencing. Superior Fencing. Okay. Um, And it's basically, I could show it to you, but that wouldn't do your viewers, your listeners any good. Send me a photo. I'll stick it in the show notes. I will do so. Um, but it's basically it's made like a, a sort of absolute fencing plastron in that it's got solid strips, vertical strips of plastic sewn into yeah. the material with a little bit of padding behind. So you've got essentially a full, full body plastron 
absorbs the blows really well. We've been doing lots of sort of highland two-handed sword type stuff, so we need the added protection. Yeah. Um, and it's great. I love it. And the fact Excellent. that it's got a sort of flared skirt means that it's vastly cooler as well, even without the ventilation. Right, of course, unless the air kind of flow. Yeah, I hate the fighting traces. They're just dreadful things. Oh, yeah, I, I don't wear them. Um, okay, so that's two ideas you have acted on. Right, okay, so... <laughs> okay, so this is a thought I had recently. So you know how people argue about um, the effectiveness of this blow or that blow or this thrust or that thrust and whether it would actually stop you and blah, 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 which is yeah. not something we can test for, mm. for ethical reasons. Yeah. I was thinking of starting a leave your body to HEMA scheme. So when you die, and, you know, those of us in the first generation of HEMA, researchers are getting to the point where the end of life is something we need to start contemplating. We could arrange a scheme where you leave your body to a local HEMA club that they can use for test cutting and answer some of these questions. Okay. Is there a reason and, not just you know, to use a pig? <laughs> a dead pig? I mean, no, no. If, and well, this is the thing. It's like, of course, people, some people will be looking for a voluntary euthanasia type solution. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I'm dying of cancer or something horrible. And so I go to my local. I really want to know what and, a two handed sword blow and, does. And, 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 and you know, charge at them going, I'm going to smack you. And they see whether a mandrilla fendente to the head will actually drop me in my tracks. Correct, exactly. Leave your body to science. <laughs> um, okay, maybe, maybe I should have clarified. What's the best good idea you've never acted on? Honestly, <laughs> uh, Paul, I can't see that taking off. I really can't. <laughs> I think the Russians would go for it, don't you? Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> anyway, okay, so being serious for a moment. Yeah. Um, I've always, like, because like, I've done some sort of instructional books and that kind of thing, and, like, when we did the Sword and Buckler book, mm -hmm. I had the weird experience of going around the world on a tour sort of a year after it had come out. Oh, God. And watching other people's interpretation of our interpretation yeah. based on the photos. I, 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 I am very familiar with that. Yes. And that was, that was convinced me that series of still photos are not a good way of conveying movement. Indeed not. Um, and, you know, technology such as DVDs and, and things like that are useful, but, I've always wanted to have something like essentially a Harry Potter book where you've got your text and all your references and all I, that I, I and a moving picture thing. that just repeats the action over and over like in, like in the Harry Potter universe. Yeah. I'm not sure the technology is quite there yet, but that's dude, what I want. Dude, I can, I've done this for my radio workbooks, right? Um, it's not quite the Harry Potter thing. But everyone does have a magic box in their pocket. And so what I've got in in my Reiki workbooks is there's a picture and there's the usual sort of text and instructional blah, blah, blah. But then there's a QR code 
which takes me takes you to a, what's called a pretty link, which is a link that kind of goes through my website. So I can change the target of the link. So if I need to update the video or change the video, I can do that without changing the link in the printed book. Um, and so you literally, you take your phone out, you point the QR code reader at the QR code and the video p- pops up on the screen. And it's cool. It is super yeah. cool. And it also, it gets around the problem of like, if it was a, like a PDF or something where you can actually embed video, there are some sort of file formats where you can. Yeah, I've but, experimented with that. It's a bit, but that, bit that, crap. It doesn't work on a Kindle. It doesn't work on anything other than like an iPad sort of thing or a computer. Yeah, you can do the same thing in Microsoft Word, but it freaks out if it gets too much. Right, and then the file sizes get too big and you can't distribute them properly. So 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 I have these video clips which are on my Vimeo account and the, the links in the book just take you straight to the particular video. So, you know, if I'm discussing Attack by Disengage, there is point your phone at it and then the video of me doing the attack by disengage or teaching the attack by, by disengage comes up and it works it's super simple and straightforward it's not difficult at all <clears throat> feel free to that's steal right. that idea that is what I want to do that kind of thing okay so, so you're going to take your um, take write an instructional book using and having these video clips rather than still uh, pictures correct still pictures yeah. yeah okay that works but that's a very good idea. And I know it's a very good idea because I've acted on it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Okay, last question. Um, okay, somebody gives you a huge sum of money to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. How would you spend it? Oh, goodness me. I'd embezzle a lot of it. Um. <laughs> good start. All right. <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe start an international HEMA university. Okay, how would that work? Um, well, it would be a university where you would learn useful things. Um, and there's, there's so much involved on the periphery of historical swordsmanship that is interesting and worth studying. So history, obviously. Right. Um, but you could use swordsmanship to, to explain geometry, and physics and Absolutely. anatomy and movement and you know physiotherapy metallurgy blacksmithing materials engineering mm-hmm. all this sort of stuff so you could probably get most of what you need for a rounded education yep all focused on becoming better swords people okay and i would be the chancellor obviously <laughs> obviously and i would right. give it a, a big big house on campus <laughs> <laughs> and campus is probably a castle somewhere yeah i think if we could clear the other colleges out of oxford that would work quite well okay yeah fair it's not like they're doing anything useful yeah exactly so as you know, know leave leave the virology department they're actually useful <laughs> <laughs> Yes, indeed. I've I've had I've had my my Oxford jab. So yeah, me too. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, so a human university where they are history and metallurgy and mechanics and geometry. Anything and else? Yep, all that. Fantastic. Everything you might possibly need that will make you a better swordsman. 
I think I think you're going to need a lot of money. You did say a huge, a huge sum, of sum of money. I did, yeah, fair. Okay, in which yeah. case I'm now 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 obliged to like make good on that. All right, here you go, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so a gigantic sack of cash. Go start the historical martial arts university, and and you're going to need professors. I will. Yes. Just, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, marvelous. Well, it's been a lovely talking to you, Paul. Thanks for joining us today. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Paul. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. And Paul has provided some links to some of the things we talk about in the show. So if you want to dig deeper into Welsh bucklers and what have you, then that's where you'll find the links. While you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us at Patreon uh, for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. Patrons get everything first and they get all sorts of things thrown in in addition. For example, all my patrons have a free copy of my latest book, The Windsor Method, The Principles of Solo Training. Patrons can also suggest questions for future guests, suggest people as future guests. And of course, patrons, when you ask for something, I always take it seriously. I can't always deliver, but I always try. Join us there at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Join us next week when I'll be talking to R.C. Annie. Well, I'll be talking to Ruth Cooper Brown and Rachel Bowne Williams, who together founded the stage combat and fight direction and intimacy direction company RC Annie. It's a really fun show. It's also the first time I've ever interviewed two people at the same time. And it worked really, really well, though I do feel very, very sorry for poor Katie, who is the transcriber of the show. It must be really, really difficult having three voices, not just two to sort out. So sorry, Katie, but it was totally worth it from our perspective because it's a really fun conversation and we go into all sorts of things, including stage blood and guns on stage and things like that. So you don't want to miss it. So subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts from. While you're there, if you'd like to rate it or even leave a review, that would be marvelous. And as always, perhaps the best thing you could do to support the show other than, of course, supporting us on Patreon, is to think of someone who you know would like this episode and send them a direct link to it so they can enjoy the thing that you have just enjoyed. Nothing beats an individualized, personalized recommendation. So thanks for listening, and I will see you next week.